0: This episode is hosted by Jordi Monn Companies. Check out the show notes to follow him on Twitter. Hello, Thomas. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be here. So we have you here because you're one of the biggest experts in a technology called EBPF. So let's dive deep into what is EBPF?
1: EBPF is a... Super exciting but super low level kernel extension that is driving like this silent revolution and is changing what Linux kernels and now actually even Windows kernels are capable of doing. And it has completely changed the innovation capability at the operating system level and it has led to an explosion in new tools and products and solutions coming out that are, are making use of eBPF.
0: So, tell us, tell us a First, tell us a bit about the history of ebpf. Right, uh, you are one of the biggest experts in this technology. There aren't that many, by the way, because uh, it's emerging. Although it's a long, uh, uh, it has a lot. This technology has a long history. Uh, so, can you tell us about a bit about that, please?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, ebpf um, itself was merged into the Linux kernel 2014. It's about the same time as Kubernetes itself started. But similar to Kubernetes, it actually had a life before this as well. Um, It's actually not necessarily just the BPF part, which originally comes from the BSD world. There is a relationship there, um, but it's not just a natural evolution. In fact, in 2014, a group uh, of engineers approached the Linux kernel community. They were employed by a startup called PlumGrid back then, and they had developed a language, um, and they wanted to merge that into the Linux kernel. And this language... Essentially composed of a runtime and the actual bytecode the def- bytecode definition, the actual instruction set, and they wanted to merge this into the Linux kernel and said, "Hey, this is going to be amazing because now we can not just load Linux kernel modules, which was up to that point the only way that you could actually extend the functionality of the Linux kernel, but that was intended for drivers for device drivers. But is eBPF thought, or what was later named eBPF, had a lot more properties like safety, security. You could actually safely uh, extend the Linux kernel, and you would not risk crashing your Linux kernel if something went wrong. And this was initially, of course, like many other contributions, the Linux kernel met with some suspicion, like maybe this is too big of a step and so on. Uh, but then... Fortunately, the right decision was made and eBPF was merged into the kernel. The reason why it is called eBPF is because the one condition that the kernel kernel community had was you can merge this in, but we are not interested in maintaining two different bytecode runtimes. And the runtime that already existed in the Linux kernel was called BPF, Berkeley Packet Filter. Very, very old, older than I am. And the Linux kernel community said, you need to make eBPF compatible with that BPF. So your new runtime needs to be able to run the old code as well, the BPF code. Like this old BPF code is actually what you, for example, if you run TCP dump, it's a small tool that you use for network observability that actually uses BPF to do this packet level filtering. eBPF can a lot more than that today, but it can still run that uh, that old bytecode BPF code that was invented more than 30 years ago.
0: So the community in a way wanted to enforce backwards comp- compatibility even if eBPF goes way beyond what BPF did they didn't want to uh the introduction of eBPF to become a uh, a breaking change right correct exactly yes okay and also what these guys are uh, suggesting the co- putting forward the contribution of eBPF uh, um, had in mind was was something that was um, so, so it's it's kind of like ebpf has a double is a double sided sword because uh this is obviously a contribution towards the kernel but the the main benefit of having ebpf in the kernel is that you can use uh, ebpf from from without any more contributions to the kernel correct so it's a it's a one off I know these guys probably had in mind that ebpf. Would require more contributions and upgrades and stuff like that. But the the beauty is that it allows you to uh, leverage the kernel from with, without any more contributions to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, fortunately, at
1: that point was actually exactly the point where it started to become more challenging and more difficult. To contribute to the Linux kernel, because there were lots of different groups that wanted to change this. They were the hyperscalers, they wanted a better networking stack and had specific requirements. I want this counter and I want this observability. There were the embedded devices folks, they wanted to run Linux on microchips and microcontrollers and in cars and everything. There were companies building supercomputers of Linux. And like like was Android, there's so many different groups leveraging Linux, all needing different. Different logic, different extensions, and every change in every software pro- program always comes at a cost. And because of this, all of these different interests, there was a clear move and a clear understanding that extensibility, long term, will help the EBPF or will help the Linux kernel and EBPF. And that's exactly what EBPF led to: that the Linux kernel, that innovation, that initial innovation where you maybe not want to commit to long term stability, that this initial in- this innovation cycle, this is what eBPF enabled. That's exactly this. That's why I call it a silent a silent revolution. A lot of revolution has happened as part of this eBPF movement that is super low level and as part of the Linux kernel, but it has it has changed the ability of Linux dramatically. Before
0: we do actually deep dive into the eBPF, the runtime or how it works in detail, let me take a 2D tools. I'm more fami- way more familiar with how Git the Git project is actually developed and how those conversations of adding new features happen. And I'm not the biggest fan. I've always suggested to the Git community, I did so back in the day in Git Merge and so forth, that adopting GitHub or any public uh, collaboration method might be better than email patches. All these conversations that you just mentioned, because the Git roadmap, quote-unquote roadmap, is much clearer or less controversial, but these conversations about adding new features to the Linux kernel that you just mentioned from all over the world, from all different interests, you said the hyperscalers, the eBPF community and all, how do those happen, by the way? Give us a short, like, are those via email and as... um Complicated to track as Git uh, conversations, or, or is there a better method? It's there? probably even even worse. I think that <laughs> the, the, the kernel
1: community, like it's an, is amazing people that work on the Linux kernel. I have many great friendships from that time, but it's also a community that definitely it lifts. It's an email based culture, right? Like, and it's like this famous Linux kernel mailing list with it's impo- it's almost impossible. I know some people are physically capable to read all the messages, but it's really really hard. Um, so I think that, that was only like the one aspect of the of the challenge, like the actually agreeing on. The other challenge, and maybe that's the challenge I saw more uh, as an employee of Red Hat, is that in particular enterprises and customers using Linux, they were not interested in running the latest and greatest kernel version. They were not the ones compiling their own kernel and uh, rebooting machines. They typically wanted very stable, solid, long-term releases um, running Kernel versions that are years old, five plus years old. And this actually created a, a huge time gap between merging new functionality into the Linux kernel and making that available to customers. And using Linux kernel modules back then was the only way to actually solve this problem, right? So a lot of vendors actually did provide a Linux kernel module to extend the kernel. The problem that this is not secure and it can crash your kernel. It can even worse, you can crash your entire fleet of servers, right? And eBPF, and I think that's a value of eBPF that was not immediately understood, but that's the long-term high value. of that's, that's the real return on the investment of eBPF, that we can now safely extend the kernel, like very stable old versions of the Linux kernel can be extended with eBPF.
0: The second detail that I wanted to take, and again, let's keep it short because everyone would like to know about eBPF is actually something that you mentioned. It seems that you had a previous career, not a previous career, but the, 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 your professional career had a different focus before meeting eBPF. And at some point, this got hijacked by eBPF and you've become completely infatuated in a good way uh, with the technology to the point that you've founded the com- a company called um, Isovalent, which is called the eBPF company by some people. So how, how, can you give us a, a brief um, outline of how you were working at Red Hat before that and then how just your love for eBPF came, came yeah, to I was, uh, be? Yeah, I was
1: a Linux kernel developer for about 15 years and as part of that, um, I worked on a lot of the networking functionality, security functionality, IEP tables, IPv6 routing and so on. And it was always super fascinating to me to create software that then makes it into the hands of millions of users and customers and so on. That was amazing. So I was essentially part of Red Hat's Linux kernel team and working primarily Linux on the Linux kernel upstream um, and then saw eBPF. I saw the initial proposal and it became clear pretty quickly that this will have a massive impact because it would completely change how infrastructure software is being written. And to a large extent, Linux, from a kernel perspective, is part of this infrastructure level. And this it made it clear that, wow, this is going to just revolutionize what is possible. And I want to be part of that new wave of eBPF-based technology that is coming. Um, so we initially created the Cilium project and then founded Isovalent around Cilium.
0: Okay. So we'll talk about those use cases that I guess your mind was already envisioning when you came across ebpf for the first time in a bit, but let's go into the architecture of current ebpf. Uh, so let's actually describe us how the runtime work. If I don't understand it wrongly, it's got three parts in a way. The the development, the verification, and the attachment, but uh, please go as, uh, in as much detail as you want about the runtime itself.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I'll we'll make a high-level uh, association first and then go into the de- details. If you have no clue about eBPF, start thinking about it very similar to something like JavaScript in a browser. I like guess a lot of it is completely different, but there are some parts that are similar. JavaScript, there's a language part that defines the program, And then there's a runtime and that's embedded into something that's quite specific, in this case, the browser. And then there's a sandbox concept that makes it safe to run that program, which is untrusted, right? And that's the same for eBPF as well, makes it safe to run as part of the browser in a entity, maybe in your laptop, where you actually have a lot of sensitive data, right? So you, you actually don't, you need to have security around the JavaScript program as you run that as part of your browser on your laptop. And the same is true for the Linux kernel. So there is the bytecode, which is the, the language definition. Most application developers writing eBPF programs are not actually writing this bytecode. They are writing this in so-called pseudo C code or Rust or Python, one of the other high-level high level languages, and then use a compiler to compile that into eBPF bytecode. This bytecode looks very similar to uh, x86 instructions, so it's essentially, it essentially looks like assembly. This is generic bytecode. It's, it's portable, just like Java bytecode Java byte as well. This bytecode can then be loaded into the Linux kernel and you tell the Linux kernel, I want to load this and I want to run this program when some event happens. So again, very similar to JavaScript. Run this program when the user clicks on the button. In the case of the kernel, it is a system call. For example, when you uh, connect to another endpoint or when you access a file or when a network packet is being received, you define when this program should run. The kernel then takes this program and actually starts analyzing it. So it goes through the verifier and the verifier will ensure that this program cannot harm the Linux kernel. So it will, for example, ensure that the program is guaranteed to run to completion. This means it ensures that it can never loop endlessly because that will damage your kernel. It also ensures that you cannot read arbitrary kernel memory, for example. And so lots and lots of safety checks. Once the program is declared safe, it can proceed. If it's not safe, the kernel will reject to run it and will, uh, will essentially return an error and say, hey, this is not fine. This is called, called a verifier, um, verifier e- exception. After verification, it goes through the just-in-time compiler And this CHIT compiler translates the generic bytecode into whatever your CPU understands, x86, RMPPC, whatever it is. This actually makes the EVP program as efficient as if you would recompile and reboot your machine. This specific bytecode that is now specific to your CPU is then attached to the hook point, for example, every time you access a file, or every time you execute a particular system call, or every time a network packet is being received, and it then gets Run.
0: OK, so let's go back a bit. So there's a specific compiler. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it BCC? Uh, and what does it do at the beginning of this process uh, of uh, writing uh, in pseudo-seal? I like that term, by the way, Rust or, or Python, the, the most used languages.
1: Yeah, so there is two levels of compilers. There is There are generic compilers. Um, supported by GCC and LLVM, they can take any sort of pseudo C code and and, and write that or compile it into um, eBPF bytecode. And then there are more use case specific compilers like VCC or BPF trace. They take slightly higher level intent languages. For example, I want to see specific observability data or I want to do specific tracing and then generate a program out of that. So. That would be a higher purpose or higher level compile. There's lots of these. And when we look at the eBPF system, most users of eBPF actually just consume one of these higher level projects and use eBPF indirectly. They never actually directly interface with eBPF itself, but they use, for example, BCC or BPF Trace or Cillium or Falco or Pixie or one of the other large
0: number of projects that we have. So can you actually list the number of languages that are supported? We've mentioned Um, um, Rust and Python, any others? I'm sure there are many, many more. Uh, essentially, like
1: any, there's, of course, lots of intent languages like YAML and JSON-based uh, like intent descriptions. I want to, for example, you could also say that network policy implemented by Cilium is essentially what Cilium does. It takes your network policy and compiles and generates eBPF programs to implement this, right? So there's... Actually, a, a long, long list. It's, it's tempting to just look at the programming language, but in fact, most users use high-level
0: intent languages to describe their needs. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. declarative. So how does the kernel work with an eBPF program? Because if I didn't understand you wrong, if I, yeah, if I didn't understand you wrong, the eBPF program per se does nothing. It's connected to an event that, it, that the kernel is monitoring to a system call And only when that system call is actually monitored, perceived, um, captured, then the eBPF program is run. Is this correct? And how does that happen? Exactly. So essentially, that's exactly what what, what happens. So
1: you would have native kernel code. And as the, the program logic is run and it gets to the point of such an eBPF hook, the user can essentially or the system administrator can attach any number of eBPF programs to that hook. And the kernel will then pause and run the eBPF program, this eBPF program logic will run, and it can return a verdict. And this verdict uh, can influence the further logic of the Linux kernel. So let's say if we are executing a system call, the eBPF program can say, don't continue executing the system call. And that's how a system call filter is implemented. Or for network packets, we can actually manipulate the content of the network packet. That's how we can build load balancers firewalls, forwarding, we can build anything, right? Uh, or we can simply say, I want to just continue, but I have extracted visibility. So I have, I've gained visibility and I've given that observability data to user space and a user space program can collect metrics or whatever it is it wants to do. Um, so you run at the specific hook point in the kernel and then you may or may not actually influence the further logic that the kernel takes. What's important is that the kernel version, once it has this hook point, you can run the same eBPF program on any kernel version. So the eBPF program is completely portable. The reason why that is, is it cannot just call into arbitrary kernel functions. It has to use a stable API. These are called eBPF helpers. Like eBPF programs, they're not able to do the arbitrary things. They essentially contain the business logic when they actually want to, for example, read the attributes to a system call or they want to manipulate the network packet, they have to call into the stable API. And this stable API is maintained across all the kernel versions. And this is making eBPF programs portable, whereas a Linux kernel module is not. That's another major advantage.
0: I, I, think, by, uh, yeah, I think that this connection to events that this, this trigger event of the eBPF program that you just described by the kernel once the system call targeted is actually captured or monitored. I think this is what took um, Justin Cormack, in this case, the CTO of Docker, to call it uh, the Amazon Lam- Lambda of the kernel. How, how much do you agree with that uh, high-level description of, It's awesome. Uh,
1: That's exactly what it is. I, I Also, I, I, somebody said, like, this is, like this, is the, this is the fast of the kernel. Absolutely. It's 100% true. And I think one aspect of eBPF that makes it even more accurate is that eBPF programs themselves are essentially stateless. So very similar to, like, a Lambda function. And then you have your state, your data, whatever you need to maintain is in call eBPF maps. And that's, that's incredibly interesting because it means you can persist, you can keep the state while replacing your program logic. What this allows, and this is super fascinating if you start talking about thinking about specific use cases, it actually allows, for example, in the case of Cilium, we can replace the entire network forwarding logic, the entire data path. We can introduce support for new protocols and whatever. Atomically without losing any state. Like connections will continue flowing. Like our for networking, for example, you need a connection tracking table to, to track all the connections that are flowing. That's completely new because prior to this, if you run a, a regular process on Linux, like a C C program-based, the state, there is stack and there is like data, and then if you if you restart a program, you lose all of that. In eBPF, the state is typically in the map, and this map persists, you can replace the program logic, just like you could replace a Lambda function while it still connects to the same database, and that state is still in there.
0: Okay. That's fascinating. I didn't know about that. So let's actually talk about use cases. It seems like the the first one, historically, the first use case of uh, eBPF was Correct me if I'm wrong, um, performed by Netflix at scale, I mean, you know, like large experiments with, um, in production with, with UBPF. And they used it for performance, right? So they could track um, the system calls that would uh, be measuring, you know, uptime or whatever, and they could take action on those. But there's plenty more, right? I think Cilium might have been created around the idea of monitoring networking. I don't know if a a DNS call resolves into a domain that is prohib- prohibited for that application to, uh, to, to access, then have eBPF stop the application accessing that uh, IP because uh, that's, that's part of the policy. Uh, but there's more, there's security, that's the one that actually I'm more interested in lately, observability, which is a bit of a mixture of all of them, and debugging, so could you actually walk us through, well, if you, if you want to describe any of those in detail, that would be fantastic.
1: Absolutely. I think there was not this one use case that came first. I would say in the beginning it was observability and networking were probably like the first core broader use cases. And I think around observability in particular performance monitoring, performance troubleshooting. One amazing property of eBPF is that it is incredibly efficient and you can build logic into um correlating and aggregating raw observability data into something that's more compressed, for example, a histogram, or instead of streaming a list of events, actually collect a metric. And this is where BCC comes in. So BCC was one of the first big use cases of eBPF, and it allowed Netflix and others to do performance troubleshooting at scale and in production potentially, like with very minimal impact on actual production systems. There's many great talks from Brendan Gregg out there diving into use cases of VPC, BCC, uh, and and how uh, how this has enabled Netflix and others to actually track down really, really hard performance issues in production systems and get to the bottom of it. I think the other big use case in the beginning was definitely that eBPF, has a long history in kind of, or BPF had a, had a history in networking as well, and eBPF was immediately also attached to the networking world. It, it, it was even kind of merged into the kernel via the networking subsystem in the beginning. So there was a very strong motivation to use eBPF um, for networking use cases. The reason for that is around the time when eBPF was introduced, software-defined networking came around and into Linux as well. So there was a huge demand for programmable networking. And eBPF, and that's essentially at the source of the, the Cilium vision as well, eBPF is a fantastic technology to essentially have highly flexible programmable networking with unlimited possibilities. When I look at the reason why we created Cilium is we saw SDN evolve and solve a lot of problems. But it kind of stopped the vision midway because it made networking programmable only in terms of building blocks that are networking specific. So you have what's called a flow table, which is a forwarding logic. We made that programmable. But then and if you wanted to create something that is outside of what's already established in networking you would have to create or change your building blocks again and eBPF is almost general purpose not quite there are some limitations but it's much much more generic than let's say a programmable flow table and that was at the source of not only the creation of Cilium, but also companies like Facebook deploying eBPF at scale and i think the big aha moment for a lot of people in the kernel community was when facebook as one of at one of the kernel community events came around and essentially presented to the world hey we have replaced our uh, ipvs which is another linux based load balancing solution we have replaced that with eBPF and by the way we saw a 10x improvement and the room was just still like just silent for like 5 seconds because this is like a type of improvement that you see very very rarely so it's mind blowing. Like I think a lot of people were kind of, I don't believe you, but like it's like really good engineers talking on the stage right now. I don't want to question you. And I think then it became clear that like eBPF and XDP and the whole networking attached to EBPF that this would undergo a big change and that eBPF will change the
0: landscape forever. What about security? Um yeah, what does EBPF do in that? Stage? Absolutely. So
1: security was at the in the second wave, right? Because Great observability leads to great security. If you can also enforce, like if you have deeper visibility, eBPF, like one of the properties, because it's efficient, because it has visibility into almost anything on the system level, it can see almost everything. There are some limits, of, of course, and we can talk about this, but you have so much observability potential that by also adding enforcement points into the eBPF capability, this allows to unlock a great set of new security-focused tools. Initially, we saw this just on the system call enforcement level, so more intelligent, better system system call enforcement, like what system calls a particular application is allowed to perform and not. And today, we're seeing actually a completely new wave of security tooling that is all based on eBPF and able to actually encode a lot of the enforcement logic, even the threat mitigation, threat detection logic inside of the Linux kernel, which is Fascinating. That actually required to extend the eBPF runtime a little bit. That came essentially about one or two, one or two years
0: later on. Can you, can you extend on that? What did, what did it require to be uh, added to the eBPF, please?
1: Absolutely. So I think In the first wave, we saw eBPF primarily just from an observability perspective in being able to export data. And then there were a variety of network-specific hooks. Like, I can run a program and a network packet is being received or transmitted. A couple of years later, we saw the evolution of LSM eBPF. LSM is the Linux security uh, layer of the Linux kernel, where you can essentially have pluggable ways of doing security enforcement in the kernels. There's lots of hook points that you can attach logic and you can do authorization or whatever logic you want to impose. By making it possible to attach eBPF programs, you are essentially allowed to take something like SC Linux, like the capabilities of SC Linux, but make that fully programmable. And had whatever logic you need, whatever like it allows to to create innovation in the kernel again. Right, so it, it always keeps back to this, or keeps coming back to this that eBPF allows to all of a sudden instead of taking three years to make a kernel change, you can do something in a couple of weeks, um, and that that was that was the enabler. So I think as soon as the the impact on the observability on the networking side was clear, like the spark was was there immediately that we want the same for the security side. And then field after field was added to this, and now eBPF is being seen as a potential solution for many areas in the Linux kernel where we
0: would want to see innovation. Do you foresee any, I mean, it seems like observability, which seems to be a bit of an um, uh, umbrella term for, for many things, as you said, uh, from good observability comes security, but also performance and so forth. Do you, do you foresee any use case that we haven't mentioned? Uh, have you seen anything in, in our surveillance clients or whatever that doesn't fall into these categories that we just mentioned?
1: Yeah, I think the one area I would say that is not just on the security observability side, I think eBPF gives a, an opportunity to create a new set of preventive security. Um, this is also I think coming in from a, from a perspective that most security solutions that have been out there on the market they have been using what 's available from a Linux kernel API perspective S trace P-Trace, whatever APIs have been using or a Linux kernel module they were subject to these limitations and um, EBpf is is changing the, the playing roles it 's almost kind of like unfair uh, it's it 's now opening up uh, a, a, a set of capabilities that are out there that allow to rethink and change. And stop making the, the assumptions that we have been doing for the last twenty years. So all of a sudden, it actually becomes feasible that instead of having a kernel level probe that is gaining raw visibility and then have an intelligent engine outside that is uh, serving off that observability data, this sort of event, and then making intelligent decisions there to move this intelligent lo- intelligent logic into the Linux kernel, and actually instead of reacting asynchronously to this we can react synchronously while the code is still being affected and that, I think that will change how we approach security from a system perspective
0: uh, this is difficult to wrap one's head around i mean it's 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 leveraging the kernel um in a in a synchronous way as you d- were describing but in a custom way right so the kernel is one and you can use it one way and if you want to use it differently you should commit code and contribute you know your patch your your new feature but no you can do it with eBPF and not wait for that to happen and uh adapt make the kernel behave the way you want uh <laughs> without without that happening it, it with all the security measures of having trusted sandbox there was. Correct me if I'm wrong, and and we'll move on to something different before we just after you go into this. Was there a bit of controversy around the sandboxing of EBPF programs? Was it not sufficient enough? What, if if there was a controversy, uh, what was it about?
1: Of course, I think uh, first of all, any bigger change like this is like is heavily debated and, and um, discussed, and. It was also clear that eBPF will be used by all the major stakeholders of the Linux kernel, like all like from the Red Hats to the Google to the Facebook, like, all, the, that, all the big names were there, and they were super interested. And they, would also, they also immediately saw that they will rely on this. So they will be exposed to the risk of this. So they want to make use of this, but they will also be exposed to the risk. So there was immediate high interest to make it as secure as possible. And this is an ongoing effort. But I think it's it's, it's it's important to understand kind of the threat model of this. The alternative is either a Linux kernel module, which we don't even need to debate about the security, there is none or close to none, or to change Linux kernel code and upstream that. And it's interesting that several stakeholders are now actually more interested and more convinced that eBPF programs is significantly better from a security perspective than changing kernel source code. Like we kind of make this assumption that kernel kernel hackers is this like breed of uh, like perfect humans and never make yeah. a mistake. That's, <laughs> that's not accurate at all. Right? I think uh, we're all just humans, and um, even a Linus Torvalds eventually will make a mistake, right? So that risk was actually also considered at all times, and and. So from that perspective, ebpf creates a, creates a sandbox and is just in theory strictly better than anything that's either a kernel module or just changing kernel source code. Right.
0: One, one thing that fascinates me, and we're changing gears a bit again to a more abstract level, um, is the adoption of technologies. Right. So you said uh, I've mentioned Docker before. Um, technologies like Docker Swarm did not pick up, and yet eventually uh, Kubernetes did and they mostly solve the same orchestration problems that one did unsuccessfully and the other one does successfully. It seems to me that unikernels, although completely different from eBPF, wanted to solve this uh, same problem, right? So unikernels basically, and you can explain it in much more detail than I did. We had an interview with Edith Levine years ago in this podcast, I'll link it in the show notes basically are shrinking down the whole stack, right? Including the kernel, right? Uh, And making it slim and sort of like easy to use, but allowing you to leverage all the, well, from the drivers to the kernel, whatever. And that did not pick up. Um, So do you have any reasons for that? And the reasons why eBPF uh, did actually become as successful as it is now, and as it seems to be going to be in the future?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think unicorns. if we get unicurls, if we got unicorns to work, like the output of that, like the result would be technically even a bit better than what we get with eBPF. But there's lots of adoption complications and risks, and it's a, it's a lot harder to go from what we have right now to unicorns than to go from what we have now to using eBPF. eBPF is this idea, and I think this is where it where it's aligned with Kubernetes. It's this ideal ratio of, I need you to change a little bit and I give you a lot back, but I may not fulfill like the ultimate dream, (laughs) right? So eBPF works on, you can go into an enterprise today and offer and say, I have this eBPF based solution. They can run it. If you want to convince them, you need to stop using Linux and use my unikernel, that's a lot harder. So I think it is this the, the significance and the size of the step that we require users to take and eBPF is amazing. Um, probably almost everybody listening to this is actually using eBPF and you may not realize it. Right? If you're running Android and you have ever looked into the traffic stats of which app is using how much network uh, volume, that's not an eBPF. If you're using Chrome, the plugins, they're sandboxed using BPF. Like, eBPF is everywhere. It may not always be visible, but the there's very little in in, in terms of ad, uh, adoption barrier from a technical perspective at this point. It literally, virtually all versions of, of Linux that are in use today have eBPF capability.
0: I did mention right a minute ago um, Kubernetes. Uh, and, um, and in this case, I opposed it to Docker Swarm and eBPF to Unikernels. But it seems like eBPF is also eating um, part of kubernetes's um, pie if i may put it that way because uh one of the use cases in kubernetes of um to manage observability is to create a parallel sidecar container to the one containing the workload that manages i don't know income, ingress or whatever you know traffic security and stuff like that right but that implies it seemed, It's a fairly simple model, but that implies obviously doubling the amount, at least. At the very least, doubling the amount of containers running in a pod, et cetera, et cetera. That's a sidecar model at a very high level. It seems like eBPF can actually um, uh, reduce the need for that. Is that true?
1: Absolutely. And I, first of all, I think eBPF and Kubernetes are super well aligned. If you look at what Kubernetes is doing, it takes... A bunch of high-level intent, pod definitions, service definitions, and it configures primarily the Linux kernel or other operating systems to do whatever it needs, via right? the container runtime or some networking layer, the namespacing, the C groups, all of that, right? And that's exactly what eBPF does as well, or like something like Cilium does as well. It takes high-level intent and then implements that high-level intent. It's also very similar to what the sidecar proxy does. Like, why do we have a sidecar? Because the functionality needed by the user is not capable or not offered by the Linux kernel or the operating system below. which is why we want to have a sidecar to give us the observability to implement MTLS, to do some specific layer seven routing and so on. eBPF, for some of the service mesh cases, not necessarily all of them, but for some of them is radically more efficient than using a proxy or a sidecar. And the way we see this, and I'm speaking as one of the silly maintainers, is that if we talk about MTLS, if we talk about tracing or HTTP visibility, if you are talking about just layer seven authorization or network policy or just session affinity and all of these simple use cases, we can actually do all of that entirely in eBPF without introducing and running any proxies at all. Right? Not even a sidecar. We're not even talking a proxy in this case. It's all native kernel. So like a user would not even see where this is being done. It's just magically. Happening. And then for some other use cases where we actually need to run a proxy, one example would be HTTP retries or layer seven load balancing, we can run a proxy and we can enrich that with eBPF and can make that more efficient. So I really see eBPF as a more efficient implementation of high level user intent. And in many cases, it will be a combination of native kernel functionality, eBPF, and then optionally a proxy were
0: needed. So let's talk about the barriers to adoption of eBPF, right? the, the, the what One seems to be very obvious to me, although you did mention at the beginning that uh, no one writes eBPF programs in bytecode. You could, of course, but um, there's no need because you can do it in uh, high-level languages. Well, quote-unquote, because I, I wouldn't say C or c to c is a high-level, or Rust, actually. But is, and others um and that also the compiler has gone has made huge strikes um in terms of port- portability and being able to target multiple architectures and Linux distros in fact all of them are stable ones uh so but so that seems to be like one one obvious one right the the fact that um, um two obvious ones that a deep understanding of syscalls and the kernel in a general sense is needed. And also that it would benefit you as a EBPF programmer to have to be pretty savvy with C and why not um, um uh, the bytecode. Uh it, did, did I did I miss anything in those? And are there other barriers that uh uh you guys in and Isovalent and, and the Ceiling Project also are trying to sort of like overcome?
1: Yeah, I think EBPF like is as I mentioned in the beginning, is super low level, but the eBPF ecosystem overall. So if you look at just the runtime, you could compare that to like assembly. But then there are projects on top of that. Like you can, you can run, you can have, let's say, a front-end developer able to write Node apps. That person potentially doesn't, is not capable of writing assembly code. But, and that's probably little understanding of like the inner workings of the Linux kernel. But eventually, that Node app actually runs this assembly code on the CPU and then as part of the kernel as well. And it's exactly the same on, on eBPF. It's layers on top of layers, right? There's the runtime, there's the bytecode, there is pseudo C code. Then there is the next level of abstractions, which would be uh, projects like BCC or BPF trace, where you need to have system understanding, but you already don't need to actually write even pseudo C code. You write Python code or Rust code. Uh, you still need to understand how you get that data out um, and what hook points to attach to, but you don't, don't actually need to low, uh, write a low-level language. And then on top of that are additional projects, for example, Cilium's Tetragon or Cilium Hubble or Pixie, as many observability tools. And they actually require you—they require no knowledge whatsoever on even the kernel level or the concepts. They're purely—they're purely, they're purely end-user focused projects that are like, I want to have, for example. I want to have flame graphs. I want to see which function of my program is using how much CPU. And that's using super low-level EBPF constructs, but it's targeted at an application developer with no understanding of systems. Or we can look at Hubble, gives you network observability. You need to have not even understanding of networks or anything on the kernel level, but you still see all the connections and what services are talking to each other and so on. So it's layers on top of layers. And you can be super excited to be involved in the lower levels and really drive forward innovation if you're building new products. But most users will actually just be end users and come in and use the
0: really high-level abstractions. So you've already described a bit, and we're finishing with this, by the way, with these last few questions. So can you give us a description of what the Cilium project is? What is the current? Um, what are the current sub-projects in it, the features, if you wish? You, you've mentioned a few. And on top of that, what does iSurveillance offer?
1: Great. Yeah. So Cilium started out what, uh, as what's called a CNI, Container Network Interface. So we essentially container networking implemented by eBPF. Today, Cilium is much richer. Like the CNI piece still exists. So we do networking for Kubernetes or even uh, Nomad, Mesos, auto-orchestration systems. Um, but we can also, for example, connect external workloads, VMs, per metal. Um, we have network policy. We can do encryption for you. Then we have Hubble, which is doing observability around networking. Um, we have Grafana dashboards on top of that. Then we have... Tetragon, which is doing runtime security and observability using eBPF. It's completely decoupled from Cilium, but it's part of the, the Cilium governance uh, family. And then we even have like observability layers on top of that called Hubble UI, which actually give you a service map and the historical view of all my observability, both from a security and network perspective, and so on. So Cilium has essentially grown into a collection of tools and technologies, all leveraging eBPF and essentially creating layer over layer over layer to essentially get to real end-user value while making heavy use of eBPF. ISOvalent uh, was founded by the creators of Cilium, and we essentially give you an enterprise version of Cilium and all the products. if you want support, if you want additional functionality, if you if you're running Cilium, Tachyon, or any of the other projects in a mission critical environment, you typically want to have a chat with us uh, to to gain to gain to get some help.
0: So, did I miss anything that keeps you? Either awake at night with EBPF in a good way, or excited about the future. What 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 is it that uh, you're looking forward to do programming with EBPF uh, tomorrow and, and and next year?
1: Fortunately, nothing keeps me up at night. Um, <laughs> it's 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 been super exciting. I think um, we have been hitting milestone after milestone. I think that at the point when EBPF got ported over to Windows, it became clear that this is not just a Linux kernel project anymore. We've actually really hit industry wide adoption and interest, and this is becoming much bigger. We've created an eBPF foundation. We have like dozens of projects that we are tracking. We're running an eBPF summit. Um, and even despite that, we barely just touched what is possible with eBPF. To me, this is very, very similar. And I, I keep coming back to this comparison, and I know it's not, it's not super. Accurate, but it's also, to some extent, very representative. When JavaScript was invented, nobody would have thought that this would lead to products like Gmail or like this huge fleet of web browser-based apps. And I think eBPF is still in the first third of like this innovation cycle that the, t- that the technology enables. And we, are, we will see a massive expansion, in particular on the infrastructure side, but also security observability, what is made possible. We're still just barely scratching what is possible.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I, I think that, that in a way, even might get a lot of pressure out of the Linux kernel maintainers, because if people start focusing on leveraging the kernel through eBPF, then they might want to focus on making eBPF run more securely and more isolated. In the kernel, and focus on other areas of the kernel, right? And uh, the the mainstream, the less brilliant and uh, the less knowledgeable developers out there in the world focus on just taking advantage of EVPF. That is basically um, um, the kernel, at, at, you know, custom custom access to the kernel, um, which is brilliant. So yeah, yeah, I I, I can see where your excitement comes from and why, why is it completely uh, justified. So Thomas, uh, thanks so much for being with the Software Engineering Daily crew. And I wish you the best with iSurveillance and with Cilium and EBPF, of course. Thanks a lot for having me again.